Servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. This week, we have our first time ever returning guest host, uh, and I'm very happy to welcome back Mary Wiggy. Hi, Mary. Hi. Nice to be back. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Yeah. Um, so the last time you were on, we were talking about uh, the awkward adventures of Thomas Jefferson's granddaughter, Cornelia. It was like a pure Pride and Je- like Prejudice like, remake. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this time we're going to get a little bit back into our actual wheelhouse with a letter from George Washington's secretary, Tobias Lear. Now, in case people have forgotten, so Mary, you want to, um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and how we know each other. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'm a research editor with the Washington Papers, specifically working on the Martha Washington Papers project. But yeah, I, I know you're going to introduce him, but that's how we've kind of gotten to know a bit uh, about Tobias Lear. Mary is one of the few people that shares my, not it's not an obsession with Tobias Lear, it's sort of an enthusiasm for Tobias Lear, because the more you find out about George Washington's secretary, the more you're like, who is this guy? <laughs> What's he doing? I love this letter that you chose, because it it's just another side of him, another facet that was like, I didn't know you had this many sides to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. In episode of firsts, this is the first time that I've had a guest return to the podcast as a co-host. It's also the first time we've had a letter written by a man, I think. Wow. Usually we've we've had correspondence from women to a man, but this is our first letter from a man to a woman. So that's why I'm still counting it as women's correspondence, because this is very much not a letter that a man would write to another man. Do you agree, Mary? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, Mary, tell me. A little bit about Tobias Lear. Okay, so Tobias Lear was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He graduates from, oh, I should say that he was born in 1762, and then he goes to school at Harvard University. And He's a Harvard boy. A Harvard boy. And while he's still relatively young, I think you, I think you, uh, he's like around 24 or so, he gets, uh, he's highly recommended by um, Benjamin Lincoln to George Washington, and he becomes George Washington's uh, private secretary, recording secretary, and a tutor for Martha Washington's grandchildren. And then he just becomes a part of the Washington family. For uh, He joins them in uh, the 1780s, and he just stays on with them until around, oh, well, George Washington's death, even yeah. Martha's death. Um Anyway, so he marries, he's married three times. Uh, he <laughs> marries uh, Mary Polly Long, and who is apparently like in today's terminology, like a high school sweetheart. And they have one son, and then Mary Long um, dies in, oh God, in like 1793, I think, of uh, yellow fever. It's- She's one of the early victims of the Philadelphia yellow fever epidemic, which comes up quite a bit in these letters. Absolutely. And Martha uh, mentions her death and it's like, it's so tragic. And, you know, poor Tobias Lear and, and then stops. That's about all I've ever learned about her death or anything about <laughs> her for that matter. Anyway, but back to Tobias. <laughs> 
1795, he marries, again, he marries Martha Washington's niece, Fanny Bassett Washington Lear. And unfortunately, she dies just like seven months after their marriage. And she dies of what we think is tuberculosis. And so then he goes off and he takes, he's trying to really put some time and energy into his business ventures that are not successful. He does, he becomes president, I think, through the recommendation, the strong recommendation of George Washington of the Potomac Company. And that's from 1795 to 99. And and then after Martha's death, he marries another one of Martha Washington's nieces, Frances Fanny Dandridge Henley. And so, so not just one of Martha Washington's nieces, two, and both of them named Fanny, which I think is important. Not to confuse anyone or anything. <laughs> not, not to confuse anyone who's trying to write an identification of Fanny Lear, which there's two of them, <laughs> and they both have the same husband and are related to Martha Washington uh, the same way. And there's really, again, at least Fanny Bassett Washington had a bit more, um, a couple of the letters ex- that we have from her to Martha yeah. Washington, but there are none from Fanny Henley, if I remember correctly. No, but but there like Fanny Henley is kind of a big deal in early Washington. She shows up quite a bit in early DC society oh. as sort of a widow in a nice house and uh she actually was good friends with um Dolly Madison. Dolly Madison. She's good friends with Dolly Madison, and she shows up in a lot of these sort of like parlor politics type situations. So I think that's interesting because from our perspective, I know so much more about Frances Bassett Washington Lear, who he's only married to for seven months, but the longer marriage and sort of the woman who kind of makes more of a historical impact is his second, the second Fanny. Well, that would make sense because then like it's throughout the early 1800s that he serves as a consular officer, I think under uh, Thomas Jefferson. Yes. And he serves there in like um, Santo Domingo, which is now Haiti, and the Algiers. And it's in 1816 that he commits suicide at his house in Washington, D.C. When you put his life like this, it sounds very tragic and perhaps not like anything that would be something to obsess over. But I just think it's interesting that so we've got this guy, he gets attached to George Washington, like right out of college, he spends his whole life sort of as on the peripheries of George Washington, um, for the rest of George Washington's life. Anyway, yeah. he tries, I, I, he tries to marry into this family. Like, he's repeatedly trying to marry into this family. Like, not just be part of the family household as a secretary, but to marry into and become part of the family. He gets a little bit in trouble with George Washington at one point for stealing money. That is so uh, great. He, <laughs> he accepts rent money that is supposed to be going to George Washington, and he just takes it himself. Uh, and George Washington is not happy about that, as you might imagine. And this is right during the time when the whole Tobias Lear Company thing is not going really great for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he's goes back to like being the secretary. He has one of the best accounts of George Washington's death. His account of George Washington's final days is like one of the most frequently cited uh, accounts of that. Right? Would you agree? It's very detailed. It's very well done. In fact, there's two of them because... Oh, really? Yeah. And it's confusing because he writes one, I think it's the day later, but he he provides greater detail in it. And then the, mm-hmm. the one on the day of... Oh, I always get these confused. 
but it was like he wrote like a original with like his initial like impressions and like who was in the room when it happened and and mm. like what happened with the two wills that George Washington had like written and like he has a great deal of detail and though they are written nearly verbatim it just they're really rich and substantial and you can tell yeah. that like you um he edited in some regard like what he wanted to say <laughs> he knew this was going to be a big deal oh. people were going to want to read absolutely. this absolutely uh, and then, and so then, basically, somebody who kind of a failed businessman, he's been working as a secretary, he's got a little bit of a rocky relationship with George Washington, obviously, they still accepted him in his house. But then after that, he becomes this consul. It's got to be purely because of his connection to George Washington. He has zero consular experience. And he is sent to Haiti at uh, Santo domingo is the, or i don't know how to pronounce it as they as they pronounced it at that time um but it's this is a very prickly dangerous situation and who is sent there is tobias freaking lear who i cannot imagine is uh, a good fit for the situation and i guess there's all sorts of um people who are very knowledgeable about those early consuls and a lot of these early diplomatic missions like are sort of aware of a lot of the drama that surrounds Tobias Lear when he goes on these trips. And then he comes back and uh, still doesn't have any money and um, ends up committing suicide in his garden. So I just feel like his whole life, me and my husband have decided, would be a really good fictionalized movie directed by the Coen brothers <laughs> with this sort of tragic, sad sack, white boy lead. <laughs> um, but that might just be us. That might just be us. So this... The letter that we're reading today comes sometime before all of these sort of the Tobias Lear's fall from grace. Like this is Tobias Lear at his absolute peak. Um, the letter that we're reading is from April 20th, 1790. It is, so it's about one year into George Washington's presidency. And that first year of George Washington's presidency is a very, it's in New York. They're still living in New York at that time. The capital hasn't moved to Philadelphia yet. Uh, what I learned doing some research for this letter is that Tobias Lear sort of was um, working as Washington's proxy. Like if you wrote a letter to Washington, you would give it to Lear. And if Washington responded to that letter, Tobias Lear would deliver it. So he is little fancy man about town <laughs> delivering all these incredibly important letters uh about the running running the government to congress he's living in the presidential household he's has a joking teasing relationship with martha washington there's this great letter when he's trying to lure martha washington to move up to new york faster because oh, yeah. she doesn't want to come up like she's in virginia she does not want to move to new york for this presidency she's mad that george washington is even the president and tobias lear writes her this letter that's like i know you like seafood there's delicious <laughs> tasty lobsters and seafood in new york if you would just come visit us martha washington I, yeah um, I, I i don't know it may just be in my interpretation but i always like saw it as Martha was just being passive aggressive and she knew that she had to get up to New York, but she was angry at like Washington so much that she was going to take her sweet time to get up there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, I, t I agree with that take a hundred percent. And Tobias Lear is just sort of joking with her and you can see that he has this very close relationship with the family. So, uh, he has been living in New York, um, but at this point, he is taking a break. He's going on a trip with Robert Lewis. 
Yes, uh, who is Martha Washington's nephew, um, who is also working in the presidential household. But uh, he is going on a trip back home to where he was, uh, his childhood home, I believe, in, in New Hampshire. He's visiting his mother, and he's this is when he's on his trip to propose to his childhood sweetheart, as everybody describes her, Polly, uh, or Mary. And he's writing a letter to Catherine Littlefield Green who uh, is also another historical heavy hitter at this time. So Mary, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about Catherine or as she's often called, Kitty Green? Sure. Uh, Yeah, she has a lot of nicknames. (laughs) She has a lot of nicknames. (laughs) She either goes by Katie, but we're going to be calling her Kitty throughout this. So she's born in Rhode Island. She marries uh, General Nathaniel Green on or in 1774 so she's very much involved in being in the washington's circle especially during the revolutionary war and especially during um the military encampments in fact from a biography that i've read about her um it just it sounds like she looks forward to these military encampments it doesn't matter that there's a war going on. <laughs> She's thrilled to get the um, the social engagements and just being around others. But the reason I bring that up is because this is how she gets all of her connections made. Um, she grew up in a pretty small town, but her aunt was a big influence in her life, Catherine Ray, who coincidentally was a good friend of Benjamin Franklin. And uh, so after the war... She and Nathaniel Green, they moved down to Mulberry Grove, which was a Georgia plantation, and it was about a few miles outside of Savannah. A couple of years like after the war, around like 1786, Nathaniel Green dies of sunstroke, and he hmm. leaves Kitty with five children, with this huge plantation, and with a great deal of debt on her shoulders at this point. And so... By the by, the point that she um, meets, I I guess it's for the first time Tobias Lear in 1790. It must be, I think. She's going up there to petition for um, uh, basically a huge reimbursement because Nathaniel Green borrowed this money to pay <laughs> to equip his Southern Army for the war, and so. She just has a lot on her shoulders and she's in a place where she's still kind of getting acquainted with and she's far from home. Let's just say that. And she's far from like anybody, like any like social cities and like any of her old social circles. Okay. Anyway, so um, let's see. So there's a couple of like fascinating things about her. So there's at some point, I think it's right around after her trip to New York she engages Eli Whitney, who, you know, discovers the cotton gin. She actually first hires him to be a tutor for her children. And that ultimately doesn't really play out. He ends up just leasing part of her property. And that's where he discovers the cotton gin. Or invents the cotton gin. That's right. <laughs> invents, invents the cotton gin. <laughs> And then a couple of years later, this is by like 1796, she marries her second husband, Phineas Miller, who was the, when Nathaniel Green was still alive, they originally hired him to be the tutor 
Um, but he becomes a, something a bit more. He becomes like a, after Nathaniel Green dies, that is. So he becomes like a business advisor. There's some who think that he's her lover, even though, but they haven't gotten married yet. There, there's a lot of hearsay about what his role really is. Um, I love the gossip. So, because <laughs> I, uh, it helps, I think, to petition the government and get money for your massive debts that uh, were left to you by your husband when you are the pitiful widow of Nathaniel Green and not maybe someone who has just recently remarried your child's tutor. She knows, like, because of her experience going to all these winter encampments, she knows, like, all of these great names now, like Lafayette and the Knoxes and the Hamiltons and even like Anthony Wayne. There's so many friends from the Revolutionary War that actually come to her aid. And like some of them are like, you got to send one of your sons over to France to like stay with the Lafayette, you know, so he can get some schooling over there. There's a lot of people that come to her aid. And I'm curious if she married immediately after Nathaniel Green's death, if that would have been the same situation for her. Basically, I wish that these two individuals, both Tobias Lear and Kitty, both had had, like, maybe a documentary edition written for both of them. <laughs> both of them, yeah. That would be that would be helpful. Incredibly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a lot, a lot of conjecture, but the facts, the facts that we know, are Kitty Green is in New York petitioning the government trying to get money because she is financially in a bad way. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I talked about her acting as this sort of starving widow or whatever. She had a lot of property in South Carolina, and I believe quite a few slaves as well. So this is one of those situations where it's like, I'm a poor slaveholder in a massive amount of debt. But so at the time that this letter's written, she has been visiting New York. She, I know she had dinner at the uh, presidential household, which I imagine is when she sort of made this sort of friendly acquaintance with Tobias Lear uh, around this time. And I also found a letter that she wrote just very shortly before this letter uh, that she writes to Alexander Hamilton, um, trying to get her brother a job in government. And I wanted to read this quote because it's just such a parlor politics, a woman trying to get a family member a job, all this so slightly sort of seedy political stuff that's going on the very first year of George Washington's presidency. Uh, and I like the way she phrases it. She's like, Surely it is not a crime to solicit a favor of one who is as eminent for the goodness of his heart as he is celebrated for his abilities, and one, too, who honors me by the appellation of friend. So, And she's met Alexander Hamilton during the American Revolution. Like, they were all part of that social circle. So she really is friends with Alexander Hamilton. So she says, Yet if it is not... Why do I palpitate? Why blush and condemn myself? And at the same time, I am justified by my reason and prompted by my affection to commit it. Could you know my feeling upon this occasion? I am sure you would pardon me. I will suppose you do and therefore proceed. And then she goes in and says, get my brother a job. I think she just knew how to use... Okay, I'm going to use this word a lot, <laughs> so bear with me. She she was playful in her choice of language yes. and um, suggestive. I actually I wanted to share this quote with you that I found. It just made me laugh out loud. Um, that uh, she writes to the executor of Nathaniel Green's will, um, uh, Jeremiah Wadsworth, and she's mm -hmm. she's just said that she's had to sell all her furniture because she's had to start paying for all these debts and she's just fears a life of 
destitute, like living a destitute life, essentially, you know, her starving children. She asks, will you be so good as to see uh, a little to it? And one more favor, I must beg you to procure me a cask of wine such as you think I can afford to drink. Don't laugh, for I am serious. Oh, I love yeah. that. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> she's having some hard times. And so this is right, I think this is right before she goes up to New York. So, okay. yeah, I think she's feeling just a little desperate. Ah, so, so <laughs> such an interesting time. Um <laughs> <laughs> so at the um to dig into the letter so at the, we've been setting up the context for quite some time now but hopefully you have some idea of what's going on here because it is important so uh tobias lear and Catherine littlefield green are both going on a trip up north so tobias lear is going to new hampshire to propose to visit his family and kitty appears to be visiting her family in rhode island this is also a very interesting time to be in rhode island because it had not yet ratified the Constitution. <laughs> in 1790, early 1790, Rhode Island was holding back from ratifying the Constitution. It was getting uh, a lot of news coverage. And actually, uh, Tench Cox had written an article in the Federal Gazette pretending to be Nathaniel Green's ghost, scolding Rhode Island for not having uh, ratified the Constitution yet. Um, and this is exactly the time that Kitty's going back to Rhode Island to visit her family after uh, visiting New York briefly to beg for money. So um, she's visiting her family uh, and Tobias Lear is writing a letter to her after they have been traveling together for a little while, but they've parted ways at this point. Um, and he's just sort of writing to check in. All right. So if you're ready, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Is that oh, okay, please. Mary? I am all ears. Tobias Lear to Catherine Littlefield Green. Portsmouth, New Hampshire, April 20th, 1790. You see, I am a man of my word, notwithstanding I might be excused had I deviated from it, considering the business of my tour to this part of the country, which might naturally be supposed to engross all my attention. After leaving you at Newport, I took possession of your cabin, and slept soundly till we had got within a few miles of Providence. I had no interruption, for the demon of playfulness left the vessel with you. From Providence to this place I had a pleasant journey as to the weather, and it is unnecessary for me to say how peculiarly pleasing it was on the other accounts. Upon my arrival I had the happiness to find all my friends enjoying health, and as much happiness as commonly falls to the lot of mortals. The dear object of my affections received me with all that sincere and heartfelt pleasure that is known only to those who are acquainted with a virtuous and tender attachment and on Thursday next I shall receive her hand. And if I do not enjoy as much matrimonial felicity as any human being has a right to expect, I shall give up all pretensions to calculation. We propose leaving this place for New York on the 10th of May, and shall, in all probability, proceed thither by land, for the country at that season will be very pleasant, and it would be highly gratifying to my dear girl to see as much of it as she could. However, we have not yet ultimately determined upon our route, but if we should go by the way of Providence, we shall be in that place about the 16th of May, and in that case you know how happy it would make us to find you there and to have your company to New York. I have mentioned that circumstance to Polly, and she promised herself much satisfaction in it if we go by the way of Providence. I have told what and how good you are, and she already anticipates great happiness in her acquaintance with you. 
I must beg of you not to put yourself to any inconvenience by waiting in Rhode Island for us longer than you intend to do, independent of that consideration. For as we are uncertain whether we shall be there or not, it would make us very unhappy to know that our friend had been delayed or disappointed by expecting us. At any rate, we shall be made happy in your society at New York. My Polly joins me in most cordial wishes for your health and happiness. Mr. Lewis is pleased with his tour, and is well. He desires to be particularly remembered, and I expect he will at any rate go on by land, for the very idea of being roused from sleep by the operation of a cold bath is enough to deter most any person from putting himself in the way of it. I should have a guard, and therefore have no fears of a second attack, but if that should happen you might depend upon a punctual and hard payment as you received at that time. I have related the circumstance to my Polly, and she has the assurance to say that I was a saucy fellow for making such payment. Adieu, and believe me to be, with a brotherly affection, your sincere friend, Tobias Lear. I don't even know where to begin with that. You, you do not end such a letter like that with, with a brotherly affection. <laughs> that is more than brotherly affection. I, I don't know to what degree that is, but it, it's awkward. Like, I'm, I'm always torn between the, like, 18th century men and women just wrote letters flirtily to each other. <laughs> yes. And the demon of playfulness left the ship when you left. Something with being roused with cold water. What were they doing? I don't know. It was like, were you having, like, a fun, like, water balloon fight or something? <laughs> and it just got a little... Yes, I agree with you. There is like a difference between like how men and women corresponded with each other versus how mm-hmm. men and men corresponded. But this, <laughs> something happened and we're not going to yes. say it aloud, but uh, I just want you to know that my future wife is informed now. <laughs> so I'm affirming myself as solely your brother. <laughs> This is absolutely like a friend zone letter, but like <laughs> a brotherly, a brotherly friend zone. But he's like, hey, remember that time that we flirted like a whole lot? I'm married now. She knows about it. She's cool with it. And we're going to be friends. But also brotherly love. <laughs> well, you, you have, you know, like Polly is not cool with that. Like she might yes. be putting up a really great front, but I would be if if a man sent me a letter like this, I would be very irritated. <laughs> if a man who was about to propose or had just proposed to me was telling me the stories of like being playful on a boat and saucy and saucy, I would not call him saucy fellow. I would give him the cold <laughs> shoulder and consider maybe throwing the ring back at him that he had proposed to me with. So it's interesting um He's 28 okay. at this point. Polly is 20. So it's not it's not like one of the teenage brides that we've been seeing in some of these letters, but she's pretty young. And as I said, everybody calls them like sort of high school sweethearts. It's like high school that he's like the college grad that's like <laughs> hanging out with the high school girl at the time that they must have been courting, right? So it is a little bit like I, the way he writes about her, I think you can tell that she's considerably younger. Like the way he writes about my sweet 
girl Polly and she looks forward to meeting you and he's showing her the world right like he's the big New York like secretary to the president swooping back into his hometown proposing like immediately to his childhood sweetheart uh it's an interesting vibe that he's he's sort of on a bubble I think at this point of like He's so cool. He's just got the girl to marry him. And he's about to go back to New York to like hang out with the president again. And also flirting with this other Catherine Green lady. There's just a lot going I on. I mean, I agree with you. He's riding on his very high wave that he's on at that time in his life. And he he's a bit pompous about it. He must think that, you know, it must be a privilege to marry me. Polly is so lucky. <laughs> so I've, I've heard people describe this as sort of like a like a honeymoon like I don't think honeymoons were a thing necessarily back then but this is sort of like they're newlyweds they're taking a a, sort of a long trip back to New York but can you imagine it's your sort of quasi honeymoon and we're gonna finish it up by picking up this woman that my husband has just told me he has this weird flirty prank relationship with uh and Catherine Green's 35 at this point so she's not like I mean she's got five kids as you Mm -hmm. said but like 35 year old confident Catherine Littlefield Green who's like trying to get some stuff done on this trip flirting with 28 year old Tobias Lear who's like uh anyway if they if they stopped by Rhode Island to pick her up so they can travel the rest of the way back to New York together. If I was Polly, I would not be happy about well, that. Well, no, but I mean, Katie could, sorry, Kitty could probably like pass it off, but she would be the third wheel. I mean, it would just be <laughs> awkward. <laughs> I wonder if that demon of playfulness would come back or if that uh, would just um, uh, sort of wither away in the presence of the new newlyweds poor polly i wish i knew more about polly that's my me too yes because from what i've gathered she was young and a high school sweetheart (laughs) in so many terms (laughs) they married when she was 20 she dies when she's 24 it's just it's pretty sad it's tragic but i mean like there must be I mean, I would be curious if the Tobias Lear kept any of his letters with Polly. Like, yes. Yeah, let's, again, let's make this collected letters of Tobias Lear book. Absolutely. I want to close this conversation by talking about what the heck happened with this cold bath. <laughs> Telling a future wife about a playful game with another woman, and I was like, um, skin crawling. It's... Cringeworthy. (laughs) Yeah, I. I also wrote. This is terrible, but I imagine that Polly would want to scratch out either Tobias Lear's or Kitty's eyes out. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if all three of them started traveling together. They're not even married yet. Like, he's like, by the way, I've got this really cool lady friend who you're super gonna <laughs> like. One time, one of us splashed the other one with cold water to wake them up. When did this happen on the boat? Did this happen at the president's house? When did this happen? Because at first, I was like, oh, maybe this was something between uh, Robert Lewis and Tobias Lear. But then he says, yes. he, he explicitly says, you might depend on a punctual and hard payment as you received at that time. So Catherine must have somehow dunked Tobias Lear in an ice cold water bath. Or the way I saw it was like, 
he was sleeping and she comes in and she like pours over a bucket of cold water on him and i'm like well that's one way to wake somebody up (laughs) were they super drunk was this like was she waking up out of a hangover i would like to know know, because this could not just just been like a oh casual just you know some casual like cold water bath on the face you don't do (laughs) but what okay the other thing that okay from the uh john and janet stegman uh biography on Katie or on Kitty Green that there's one like segment or snippet of information that I got about Tobias and Kitty meeting and it was at in New York in 1790 and all they say is that he found himself captivated by her charm and intellect and Katie was equally (laughs) impressed with her new acquaintance this is yes again you got to get into those primary documents because you read these secondary books and everybody's great everybody's this smart intellectual respected everybody they all got along and then you read the letters and it's like oh no they were splashing each other with cold water (laughs) and he's talking about her intellect this is also somebody who he has partied with no kidding it's just also i mean i love them because they make people human and it's like for yes. better or for worse, like you see, like the good sides, the weird sides, the flat out horrible sides, and then he's just like awkward, awkward turtle scenes of just <laughs> what, like what. There you have it. We have a rather goofy letter from an interesting time in the life of Tobias Lear and Catherine Green. A very interesting time for both of them, like ships passing in the night, or rather (laughs) staying on one ship together and at some point dunking each other in ice cold water. And I just think this is a little interesting insight into that presidential household of 1790. Agreed. I think they knew how to play some practical jokes. Well... Uh, Mary, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast again. It is always a delight. This was a pleasure. This is such a great letter. Thank you for letting me (laughs) partake. (laughs) I was so glad that you were interested. I found this letter and I sent it to Mary immediately because she's the only person that shares my Tobias Lear interests. I'm so confused. I have a big question mark still over my head about this letter. (laughs) Oh, uh, thank you so much, Mary. Thank you. All right. Um, for my listeners, I will put citations in the show notes. I'll lead you to some of these other letters that me and Mary have been citing. We've got the two, we've got the biography of Catherine Green and the checkered career of Tobias Lear, which I think this will be the third time I've cited it. It's a great book. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put that once again in the show notes for this one. Um, and thank you so much for listening. And I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much.